Well, let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father in heaven, it's good to be together. It's good to be in your word. Lord, to wake up even this morning, uh, this time of the year, before the dawn, before really the rest of the world wakes up, it's good to, to be in your word and to let the very first thing that we really soak in this morning, rather than our emails and our inbox and all that's before us and our schedules, Lord, to be together, to soak in your word is a grace. We thank you for the grace of your word for us. We pray this morning that you would use your word to pierce us through, protect us from this being simply an intellectual enterprise. But Lord, may we as men be honest about who we are as men, about our shortcomings, our failures, our sins, and our faithlessness. And Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a deeper faith this morning, that we would believe the promises, your promises, God, are true and that they've been fulfilled in Jesus. Lord, help us to know what it means to believe you in an unbelieving world. We pray that this morning and for the rest of our Tuesdays together until the end of our series this spring, we pray, God, that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 11 is where we're going to be. So if you have a Bible, open up to Hebrews 11. You'll also find the the verses we're going to focus on today on your sheet along with the discussion questions that we'll be looking at. To begin, I want to mention a study that I came across uh, during my sabbatical this past summer. Our RUF pastor at SMU, James Madden, introduced it to me. I hadn't heard of it, and it's fascinating. In many ways, it's a groundbreaking study sponsored by the University of Kent in the United Kingdom studying unbelief across cultures and countries in our modern day. And so while the University of Kent sponsored it, it was actually a joint study by four separate universities over across the pond, as they say, uh, really looking across culturally, across countries, what it means to be an unbeliever in our current world. And so they looked at these six countries, Brazil, China, Denmark, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And what they found is fascinating, that many of the assumptions that you might have about people who do not believe in God became challenged. And many of the assumptions that we think it means to be an atheist or an agnostic began to be questioned, especially in our current world. Here are some of the findings uh, that they found. The first is this, that atheists, and by definition, just we're all on the same page, we talk about unbelief this morning, an atheist is someone who says they do not believe in God, an agnostic is somebody who says they don't know whether there's a God or not, but they say that you can't really know that to be true for certain, that an agnostic will say it's it's unknowable, okay? So an atheist, someone says there is no God, agnostic says they're not really sure if there's a God or not, that... Atheists and agnostics across these six countries were incredibly diverse. In other words, you couldn't just pick out one particular race or class or socioeconomic status, but unbelief, being an atheist or or an agnostic across these six countries, exhibited an incredible amount of human diversity, okay? The second thing they found is that in these six countries, uh, that majorities of unbelievers certainly identify as having no religion, okay? 
that stands to reason. But get this, this is what they found. In Denmark, 28% of atheists and agnostics identified as being Christian. Okay? So if you live in Denmark, even if you were an atheist, not just an agnostic, even if you said there is no God, 28% when asked would say, I'm a Christian. You think about cultural Christianity here. (laughs) What must it be like in Denmark? Denmark's not the only place. In Brazil, the exact same phenomenon. 18% of Brazilians who say they are an atheist or agnostic would identify as a Christian. Okay? Now, think about uh, conversely, right? Um, In Brazil, the United States, Denmark, the UK, the majority of the unbelievers, so not the 28% who said they are Christian, the majority of those who say they are atheist agnostic, they would tell you that they at once, they were a Christian. They used to identify as a Christian and they don't anymore and maybe that's not as surprising to us. Uh, One of the other things that they found that uh, perhaps challenges our assumptions about unbelief, uh, that convinced dogmatic atheists, that idea, that a convinced dogmatic atheist, the Richard Dawkins type, the type that says there absolutely is no God, that that idea is not as popular as you might think. That atheists and agnostics in Brazil are less confident that their beliefs about God are correct than the rest of the population. In other words, those who do not believe in China are not really confident in that assumption. As we've talked about perhaps, but you've heard this before, I know I've talked about it before in this study, I actually think atheism is a faith proposition, right? It takes a lot of faith to not believe in God. And as much faith to not believe in God as there is to believe in God. And what we're seeing, at least in this study, that that's true. The atheists question their faith as well. Uh, Another thing they found that might uh, be surprising to you Not believing in God does not necessarily mean that they don't believe in supernatural phenomena. Uh, That when asked about their, uh, how they see the world around them, just because they don't believe in God doesn't mean that they don't think that supernatural things perhaps happen, that there is perhaps some supernatural reality in the world. They're just not sure that it's God who does it. Another common supposition Uh, That the idea that an unbeliever is purposeless, that they lack any meaning, they don't really have any understanding of uh, a a direction in the world, that that idea is not true. That many atheists and agnostics across these six countries actually had a great deal of meaning. That they're forming this meaning on their own and they're following a path that they see is what they are supposed to do. Uh, Another... uh, common assumption that was challenged, uh, the idea that there's no sense of moral value, no sense of moral compass among unbelievers was not true. That atheists and agnostics actually see a a great sense of human dignity, human rights, a deep value of um, creation, although they don't call it that way, uh, the environment, that they have their, uh, their own sense of morality. It's just not formed and dictated by a belief in God. And last thing, and this is interesting, that um, there was actually a, and this is a quote here, a remarkably high agreement between unbelievers and their general populations 
concerning the values most important to that population. In other words, the values that unbelievers held were not that different than the values of the general population. So what do you think the most common values of unbelievers in the United States was? Two F words, it's not faith. Family and freedom. Family and freedom. So I mentioned that all to say this. We live in an increasingly unbelieving world and yet our assumptions about what it means to be an unbeliever I think should be challenged, particularly as those who say we believe. And this is why. Unbelief is becoming very common. And in some ways, as we'll see in our series this, this semester together, it's nothing new though. Unbelief has always been around since the very beginning. But what we think about what it means to be an unbeliever, not believing in God, and what it means to be a believer, I think we need to really give some serious thought, and not just with our heads, but with our hearts. Because you and I as men are now living in an increasingly unbelieving world. And just like everyone else, we are shaped by the culture that we live in. And the question is for us in the year 2020, a new decade in this increasingly unbelieving world is what does it mean then for us to believe? How do we interact with an unbelieving world? And how do, we, how do we hold on to the belief that we've been given, not just in God, but in the triune God and in the story of redemption and the promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection? What does it mean to be a believer in an unbelieving world? The way that we're going to get at that question this semester is by going through Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. It's a survey of Old Testament figures, these men and women, these heroes of the Old Testament, where the author of Hebrews is challenging us not to just admire them because of these amazing things that they did, but what he's challenged us to see is really what they're commendable, they're laudable. We should see them as heroes, not because of these things that they did, but because of their faith. And even more than that, because of God's faithfulness in and through them. And so each week, beginning next week, we'll just go verse by verse. And as a new Old Testament figure is introduced, we will stop, we will go to the Old Testament story about that particular figure. And we'll ask the question, what did it look like for them to believe in their unbelieving world? And how do we see God's faithfulness in the midst of all that they went through? This morning, the way that I want to set that up is really the way the author of Hebrews sets it up at the beginning of chapter 11. Before we can look at the idea of faith and the life of Abraham and Moses and the patriarchs and these men and women in the hall of faith, we need to all be on the same page of what is faith really. And so I want you to look at the very first three verses, Hebrews chapter 11 is where we're going to be. The first way I want you to think about this very quickly, that faith is believing God's promises. What it means to have faith is to believe God and to believe his promises are true. I want you to look at Hebrews 11, verse one. 
Author of Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, The first thing I want to mention this word assurance is a word that the author of Hebrews has used before, but not in the way that you think. Uh, This um, coming Sunday, I'll be preaching in Hebrews 5 and 6, and in English, the word assurance is used, but it's a different word in Greek than this word here. That's actually kind of important. The word that's used here is actually the word, same word that was used way back in Hebrews chapter 1, the word for substance, the word for essence. Some of your translation might use the word firm foundation here as a translation. In other words, the idea here is not this assurance that's kind of out there in philosophy world, uh, not this assurance that's intellectual only, but it's the kind of tangible gut level, feel it in your bones kind of faith. This substance, this essence, this firm foundation, the kind of assurance, the kind of faith that is rock solid. That's the kind of faith the author is talking about. Now, faith is the substance, the firm foundation of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I think there are many misconceptions that we have about faith, particularly today. I think many of these misconceptions are actually shaped by the unbelieving world that we lived in. In many ways, because we find ourselves pitted, belief against unbelief. And so much, I think, some, our, our understanding of faith is shaped not by what the Bible says, but how we react to an unbelieving world around us. Let me show you what I mean. I think one of the common misconceptions about faith is that faith is merely an intellectual assent. What do I mean by that? The idea of intellectual assent is that you agree with a set of propositions about God. So if I'm going to list out a set of ideas, propositions, or statements about God that you would intellectually say, yes, I agree with that. I can buy that. I can live with that. Uh, If that describes you this morning, if that's kind of what you have imagined the Christian faith to be, I want you to know there's more to faith than that. It's not just giving intellectual assent. Yes, is it holding to the truth of God? It is. But this simply cannot be only an intellectual enterprise where you're giving a list of options about facts in the world and you say, yeah, I'm I'm gonna go over here and just buy this one. Faith is much deeper than that. Another common misconception about faith is that faith is culturally inherited. It's culturally assumed. In other words, it's what you grew up with. And I think this is a phenomenon you probably see in Denmark, Brazil, uh, still exists here, where somebody might say, well, I'm an atheist, but I'm still going to identify as a Christian. Uh, That would be the extreme of this. But the idea is that, look, if if you grew up in a Christian home, when given the option of all the different faiths out there, well, you're certainly not going to pick Buddhist. You weren't raised that way. And so you say, well, I'm a a Christian. But the question is, do you really have faith for yourself? Not just a faith that's been culturally inherited, maybe from your parents or people around you, because that's just what we do here in Dallas, Texas, the diamond on the buckle of the Bible belt. What is faith really? Well, it's got to be more than just this culturally assumed phenomenon. 
Another way that we have misconceptions of faith is that it's um, part of a set of opposing worldviews. The question I have for you, not just this morning, but as we move forward is, um, how much is your faith derived as an antithesis to this culture around you? In other words, is your faith formulated as a reaction against the unbelief in our world? Or is your faith positively formed from the Bible? Are you getting your faith merely as a reaction of, well, I don't want to do that. I can't bring myself to go there. And so I'm going to do the opposite. Or is your faith actually coming from truth, the truth of God's word? And then lastly, and this is what I want to look at uh, in more detail for just a second with you, is that faith is simply about looking at the past. I think so often, when you think about what does it mean to be a, a, a believer, a Christian believer, what is the essence of Christian faith? We talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and rightly so, we should. That's where our faith begins, certainly, especially this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus as New Testament Christians, we do look back on what God has done. But that's not where our faith ends. Faith is not just about looking back on what God has done. Faith is about looking forward to what God will do. It's about trusting that God not only was faithful, but that God is faithful and that he will be faithful. And so as we see these great heroes of the Old Testament, they were given a promise, a promise that the Messiah would come. They did not have the same benefit that you and I have today of seeing that promise fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so for them, faith was forward-looking, it was anticipating that the promises of God would come true, that God is trustworthy, that when God makes a promise, he will make it come to pass. For us, we have the benefit of looking back and seeing that it's true. All the promises have come true through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but just like the Old Testament believers, we're also looking forward. We know that the Messiah has come, but now we are hoping and trusting in the promise that he will one day come again. Brothers, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe not simply that Jesus Christ died and rose again, but do you believe that he will come again? Faith is forward-looking. It's trusting in the promises of God. It is believing God. Let me quickly give you an example of what I'm talking about. We'll look more at Abraham in the coming weeks. Let me give you just one story out of the story of Abraham. It's one of my favorite places to talk about faith, and it's, I use this actual passage every single baptism class that I teach as we think about God's promises in baptism. This is Genesis 15. This is after God came to Abraham and made him a promise. He made him a promise that he would become a great nation, that offspring would come from him. And as Abraham was given this promise, this promise of, 
a future offspring. So many, in fact, it would be an entire new nation would come from his lineage. He and his wife, Sarah, were infertile. God had made a promise, a promise that he would have so many children that you couldn't even number. And yet as he looked at his life, all he saw was infertility. All he saw was this painful reality that they could not get pregnant. In so many ways, this is a great picture of belief and unbelief. We live in a world that's filled with unbelief because we live in a world that's broken. A world where there is reason for doubt. Abraham and Sarah had reason for doubt. It was their circumstance. And so Abraham brought his doubt before God, Genesis 15. And he said, I'm going to take matters in my own hands, God. I hear your promises, but they're just not happening. So I'm going to do it myself. How often, if we're going to be honest men, is that our reaction to the promises of God? When we do not see them coming true, we tend to take matters in our own hands. We play God. That's what Abraham was doing. And God in his grace and kindness did not revoke his promise. He didn't take it back. He didn't say, well, you know what, Abraham, if you're not going to believe me, I'll go find someone else. No, he doubled down on his promise. He pulled Abraham aside, and this is what he said. He said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. In Genesis 15, verse 6, we're told that Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted him as righteousness. Notice it does not say he believed in the Lord. He believed the Lord. There's a huge difference. Faith is not simply believing that there is a God, that there is a Jesus Christ. James tells us that the demons believe and shudder. Faith is not simply saying, yes, I believe there's a God. No, faith is believing God. In other words, believing that what he says is true. Book of Genesis tells us in the beginning, the very first question that Satan asked, did God really say? Faith is saying God really has said. And what he has said has been fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So brothers, do you believe God? Not just believe in him. Do you believe him and take him at his word? Do you trust in his promises? Do you believe that he is faithful? The second thing about faith I want you to wrestle with, not just this morning, but this semester, is that faith is about receiving God's favor. So it's believing God's faithfulness. It's also receiving God's favor. Hebrews 11 verse 2 says that by faith, the people of old received their commendation. In other words, all the people that are about to be talked about in the hall of faith, um, they were commended. They were celebrated. These are the heroes of the Bible, right? If you grew up in Sunday school, this is where felt boards, you know, have their heyday, right? This is where all the great stories that you've been told and passed down. We're going to look at so many of them this semester together. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, look, they're celebrated and they're commended, not because of what they did, because of what they believed. They're commended not because of their works, but because of their faith. They're celebrated 
revered, honored by generations and generations of believers who've come after them, even us. So you think if you've grown up in church at all, some of your favorite stories of the Bible, of David, Moses, Abraham, story after story after story, author of Hebrews is challenging us. He's saying, don't, don't revere them because of the things they did. Honor them, revere them because of their faith. But more than that, recognize that's why God commends them too. They're commended not just simply by us, but they're commended by God, not because of their works, but because of their faith. This is the way it's been since the very beginning. Again, Genesis 15 Verse 6 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God commended Abraham. He counted him as righteous, not because he was moral, not because he was just, not because he was holy, not because he was righteous in and of himself. No, God declared that Abraham was righteous. He commended Abraham because of his faith. It's always been this way. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the story is that we are saved. Our salvation is found. Our commendation from the Lord himself is found, not in our works, but by faith alone. By faith alone. Paul looks at the same idea in Galatians. Galatians 3 verse 1 The people in the Galatian church thought that you were saved by faith in Jesus and good works. So it wasn't that they believed you were saved by works alone. No, for them, it was kind of this pluralistic idea. You're saved by faith and your works. How often is that true of us, men? How often do we say that we're saved by faith alone, and yet so often the lives that we live practically assumes that we're saved by works? It's so often what drives us is we desperately want God to be pleased with us, for him to commend us. And we think the only way that he could do that is if we deserve it. The only way. And so Paul, writing to the Galatian church, he calls them fools. This morning, if you find yourself like them, Maybe not just what you believe, but practically how you live. You find yourself like them. You think, yeah, I believe I'm saved through faith, but so often the way that I live assumes that I'm saved by my good works, my self-righteousness. I want you to hear what Paul has to say. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law, by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, rhetorical question after rhetorical question? He's saying, look, do you honestly think that you're going to be saved by works? You really think that's why Jesus came and died? If you stop for long enough, can you imagine if it really worked that way? What if that was the way that we were saved? The only way that you can be saved is by your good works. 
If you're honest this morning, do you really think that's even possible? Is there any amount of good deeds that you can do that could make up for all the sin that you have committed and will commit? I think anyone who's honest would have to say no. But thanks be to God, the promises are true. The Messiah has come. Jesus Christ laid his life down for you. He died in your place. He took on your punishment on the cross and he rose again. And he has called out to everyone, to all who were here. And he says, believe. Believe that the promises are true. Believe in me and you will be saved. Faith receives God's favor. God's favor is received. You cannot earn it. It is something that is gifted. Gifted for those who believe. Author of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 11 verse 6. He says, without faith it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. Do you think that God is pleased with you this morning? Do you think that God is pleased with you? I want you to wrestle with that, not just this morning, but this semester. The author of Hebrews says it's impossible without faith. But what I also want you to hear the flip side of that is if you have faith in Jesus, he is pleased with you because he's pleased with his son who died and rose again for you. The last thing I want to say before you go to your tables is that faith is about seeing God's supernatural spiritual power. Faith is about seeing God's supernatural and spiritual power. Again, if you look at verse one, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? It's seeing what cannot be seen. Verse three He says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In some ways, this is very basic. I think almost anyone would probably agree with this. Atheist, agnostic believer. That faith in its essence is believing in something that you cannot see. That's what makes it faith. That's what makes it supernatural. That word supernatural just means it's more than natural. You cannot observe in the natural world. It takes faith to believe that it's true. And the example that the author uses is creation. Genesis tells us that at creation, the world, the universe, all that's in it was created out of nothing by a word of God's power that what we now see tangibly in the world around us was created by what was not seen, by this supernatural, powerful act. And if you can believe that God created everything that we can see out of existence, out of something that did not exist by simply the word of his power, then can you not believe that he sent his son to die and to rise again for you? Faith is seeing what you cannot see. I want to end with a story from the Gospel of John. You can turn there or just write this down. It's one of my favorite stories because it means a lot to me personally. 
It's the story of Doubting Thomas. It means a lot to me because this is one of my most consistent um, struggles. And at times it manifests itself even as sin. Uh, I struggled deeply with belief before I became a Christian. I was plagued with doubt. Uh, hard to say what I would, what I would have identified as. <laughs> maybe I would have called myself an atheist, maybe a Gnostic. Maybe I would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and yet I didn't believe. And so many times that old demon of unbelief, of doubt, can, can rear its ugly head. And I find myself saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe that describes you this morning. It certainly described Thomas. You know the story of Thomas Jesus rose from the dead, John chapter 20. We're told that Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. That's where you know this is already going south. He didn't see it for himself. He was told, just like us. We weren't there. We've been told. We have the testimony of witnesses. We haven't seen it with our own eyes. He was told, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Unless I can see something, something tangible, I don't know if I can believe. But what I want you to see is the Lord in his grace and mercy, rather than condemning Thomas, he comes to Thomas, and he holds out his hands, and he holds out his side. And it says, Thomas, put your hands on my hands. Feel the mark of the nails. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas, Thomas, he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Brothers, what I want you to see this morning is Jesus is talking about you and me. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet believe. We have not seen physically with our eyes Jesus risen from the dead, but we do see spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word, we see the effects of a spiritual redemptive God working redemption in our lives. And just like there are so many stories that have gone before us, evidences of God's work, you and I now carry stories in our own lives. We are walking miracles, evidences of God's glory and evidences of his grace. So as you go to your tables now, I want you to wrestle with these things. Be honest about your doubts. Be honest about how you think about faith. And be honest about the truth of God's word. The stories are true. God is trustworthy. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die and rise again for you. Believe him. Find redemption for your souls and be saved. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We thank you for sending your son. Thank you that like Abraham, like Thomas, we can find ourselves weighed down by the cares of this world, distracted, questioning, sometimes even doubting. And so we pray, God, that you would, by the power of your spirit, give us the gift of faith, that we would believe that the promises are true and that they have been fulfilled in your son, Jesus. 
We pray this semester that you would bless our study in your word and that your word would do its work, that it would reveal those places deep in our hearts that are still yet to truly believe your promise. May we claim those promises for ourselves and see that you love us as sons because you sent your son for us. We pray that you would do this for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.